Welcome to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson, a show that brings you regular interviews, tips and tools for building your business online. Hi, and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. All of this week's notes and links can be found on our website at ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 99. That's right. It's episode 99. I think that deserves a big cheer and maybe the audio guys can add that in. Now, A-B testing is a popular technique that a lot of people think is essential for online success. But in today's podcast, you'll see you probably don't need it. Now, I appreciate that's a little bit controversial. Uh, And if you are like most people, you've probably heard of it and think actually it is essential for online success. But today's guest is here to tell us that that's not always the case. And in fact, in many cases, you you can succeed without ever using A-B testing. So stick around and let today's guest, a chap, called Oliver Palmer. Explain his theory in much more detail. You are not gonna wanna go anywhere. Hey there, are you a business owner? Here at Orion Digital, we know firsthand that running an e-commerce business can be really hard work. As the online space gets more competitive, it is becoming even more challenging to stay ahead of the curve. We totally get it. So we wanna help you succeed by offering a wide range of services from fulfillment, marketing, customer service, and even coaching and consulting, just so that you can do what matters most. Save yourself the time and the money and let us handle the day-to-day tasks. This way, you can run your business without having to worry about the boring stuff. So what do you say? Are we a good fit for each other? Come check us out at oriondigital.com and let us know what you think. Thanks for joining us on the e-commerce podcast. It is great that you are here. It really is. Now, whether you are just starting out on your e-commerce journey or if you're like me and many of the others that listen to the show, you've been around for a little while, uh, the goal of this show is simple. We are here to help you deliver e-commerce wow. We want you to grow. We want you to develop. We want you to conquer the digital sphere in which you operate. And to help you do that, every week we bring you two things, great show sponsors and great guests, experts in their own fields with stories, with insights, with principles that we can use and learn and adapt for our own web stores. Yes, we can. Now, today's guest, Oliver Palmer, is an experimentation practitioner. It's not an easy thing to say. It isn't, but that's what he is. Uh, And he's a conversion rate optimization consultant. He works with organizations to demystify experimentation and the MarTech stack and get a better, or help us get a better understanding of how to integrate with the big organizational picture. The man is a legend. He has got a lot to say about this topic. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. So grab your notebooks, get your pens, have your cup of tea ready. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Oliver. So Oliver, thank you so much for being on uh, our our podcast here on the other side of the world, uh, almost really. Uh, You're in 
Melbourne. I'm in Liverpool, but thanks to technology, we're having a conversation with each other. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. Great to be here. No, no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So uh, we were, we were. If, if you're watching this podcast um, uh, on YouTube, then you'll notice from the camera we were just joking about it, weren't we? The way the cameras are set up, it looks like it's daytime for you and nighttime for me. But in fact, it is a complete opposite. It's first thing in the morning here and and last thing at the night for you. It just happens to be the way the lighting works, uh, which is quite peculiar. So it's nighttime for you uh, in. Uh, what I assume is sunny Australia. Let's live up to the stereotypes, but it's nighttime for you. Um, uh, what 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 does the daytime normally hold uh, for you, sir? What does the daytime hold? <laughs> That's a funny question. The daytime holds many things, Matt. Uh, right now, the daytime holds going back to the office for the first time in uh, in two years. Oh wow! Been how, how have you found that? Oh, I've descended into outright hermitude, I think, after <laughs> two years tucked up in my little room here. I'm sort of like, do you have to be in my peripheral vision right now, <laughs> making phone calls and things? Um, but it's nice to be away from my children. <laughs> yes, that's so true. Are your kids younger? How old are your kids? Oh, four and two. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, my kids are a little bit older. One of them's at uni. Uh, my other son has just turned 18 and my daughter's just about to turn 15. So uh, I've not had, you know, I've, to be fair, my shed's down at the bottom of the garden, so they tend not to bother me, if I'm honest with you. So I, I didn't experience that when we were in lockdown, but I, you're not the first person I've heard say, it's great to get back to the office to escape the kids. That's quite funny. Yeah, I mean, it's mixed, mixed blessings, but after two years, yeah, it's good to, it's good to make a difference. <laughs> That's very true. So you're back into the office um, where you guys uh, do conversion rate optimization and yeah. um, or CRO, as we like to call it. In the I mean, sort of. So my work is, is as an independent consultant and lots of my work is um, not so much being a CRO practitioner anymore, but really helping big organizations to get better at experimentation. So sort of making that leap from thinking that they have uh, all of their battle one expertise and know exactly what they should do and how they should proceed and never really measuring the impact of their strategy and making the leap toward actually saying, we don't know anything. When we measure what we think we know, we're wrong. And uh, sort of taking this journey toward data-driven humility, really, which is um, harder than you might think, of course. That's an interesting phrase, data-driven humility. Um... I, I, <laughs> I, I've never heard that before, but I quite like it. I've never uh, said it before, Matt, so it's a world premiere. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, quick, let's copyright that phrase. Uh, let's just do that. <laughs> Get the, dot the website, datadrivenhumility.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. So you work with um, large organizations helping them realize that they know nothing at all which to be fair is the job of any consultant in any field isn't it it's to help them realize that actually um perhaps what they thought they knew and what they actually know are two different things um have you found that because that that must be an interesting journey going from being a cro practitioner to being a bit more headline consulting helping other people uh, do what maybe you used to do Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been interesting. It's sort of, it felt natural, you know, I was working as a practitioner for about a decade, really. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I'd sort of more or less done everything I could do 
there and just realized that there was this sort of particular niche skill that I had, which is helping large organizations um, make that transition. And I just sort of came to realize, I suppose, that there was enough maturity in the market. There were enough businesses that were willing to make that leap um, and that it was a sort of a unique skill set that I happened to have. But for a long time, I think it was a little bit too niche, but mm-hmm. we're sort of at a stage now where most large organizations have been A-B testing in one form or of another for, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, whether that's through an agency, you know, the marketing department has an agency relationship or e-commerce works with an agency or something like that. Mm. And and in a sort of in a fragmented way, you know, they might have run a few experiments. And then often what happens is, you know, the CMO or the CEO or the managing director or someone goes to one of the big conferences, goes to the Adobe conference in you know, Las Vegas or wherever it is, um, sees all of the wonderful things that people are doing with data and optimization and so on, but typically buys a you know very expensive tool from Adobe or Optimizely or somebody else, um, and then sets up a team and then probably six months later realizes that they're not quite getting the results that they expected. Um, mm. So that's typically where, where I sort of fit in. That's really interesting. I, again, a great picture of somebody going to a conference and getting something that they probably shouldn't get at the conference. How many times does that help happen to me? Um, uh, so one of the things that I remember from uh, pre-call, uh, and one of the things that uh, we should probably just jump into right straight away is um, this idea of A-B testing. Now, for the for those that are maybe new to e-commerce um, or who have never done any, any sort of, of this type of thing, just quickly explain what you mean by A-B testing. Yeah, so at its, at its sort of simplest, A-B testing is trying two different things simultaneously, measuring the results and seeing which one got the best result. So it might be um, the simplest thing like changing the, you know, the the um, banner image on your homepage, for instance. You know, I know a lot of retailers sort of agonize about the way that they merchandise their stores and what sort mm. of promotions they choose to put in different places. So if you're having, a, you know, a, a, a dispute, a friendly dispute around, uh, you know, what should be on your homepage, for instance, one of the ways that people will typically settle those is to say, well, let's test it, you know, let's not just uh, put the purple widgets, let's try the red widgets too and see if anyone does anything differently. Mm. Yeah, that's a very, very, very straightforward way of thinking about it. And and if you've been around e-commerce for a little while, you're going to have heard either through Instagram ads or through, you know, whatever magazine that you may or may not read that actually you need to be split testing or A-B testing. Um, and that is all part of optimization, isn't it? That actually this is, this is, in fact, so many people now, when you hear of um, CRO or conversion rate optimization, immediately think A-B testing or split testing. It's like, okay, I now need to figure out if I change the color of the buy now button, does it have any impact on sales? Mm. Yes or no? Mm. Um, my experience, though, is you need quite a it's not that straightforward if you're new to e-commerce and just starting up because you might not have a, the traffic volume big enough to actually do a successful A-B test, i.e. can you get enough data to give you a meaningful result or is it just an anomaly actually at that point in time? We don't know. So is there is there like a – have I got that right? Is there like a minimum effective dose when it comes to A-B testing, like a, a minimum amount of traffic that we need to figure it all out? 
us? I mean, it's hard to say. Um, typically, what you're dealing with is is um, you know, it's 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 statistics, it's probability. So in any A/B test, there is the the inputs, which are essentially what is the number of uh, visitors that I have coming to the site across the duration of the experiment. Um, what is my baseline conversion rate, for instance, and what is the minimum detectable effect? So what is the what is the minimum amount of uplift that I'm looking for? So if you have um, Let's say you have I don't know, ten thousand visitors to your homepage every mm. week, for instance, um, and you have a baseline conversion rate of three percent, and the minimum detectable effect that you're looking to achieve is one percent, then it's going to take you a lot longer than if you're looking for an uplift of five percent or ten percent, for instance. And when you sort of you put those calculations together, and there's lots of A-B testing. If you Google A-B testing calculators, there's lots of them out there, and you can see, punch in the numbers on your own site, and you'll see, uh, you can kind of get an indication as to how long you'll need to run an experiment for. But really, with those sorts of, those calculators, what they tell you is the sweet spot typically is, um, in e-commerce, it's very large retailers that have lots of traffic, and where uh, a minimum detectable effect of 1% can mean millions of dollars you know yeah. that's that's a real sweet spot and that's those are the sorts of clients that i typically work with um where, whereas if you are much smaller and you 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 know you have thousands of visitors to your site rather than millions and really for it to make it worthwhile with all the effort that you put into building the test analyzing the test and so on you really need a 10 percent increase in conversion or revenue or something mm. it becomes a lot uh a lot less productive, let's say. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I was always, um, I remember having this conversation years ago with various people. I was always intrigued by, um, I don't know if it's called the 1% rule, but it maybe it's just me that calls it that, in which case I, I should buy the 1% rule.com or something like that <laughs> to go along with, you know, our data-driven humility. Um, but for me, the 1% rule was such that if I could find... Uh, four or five things uh, on my site that gave me a 1% increase. And actually, the cumulative effect of that was quite significant. Do you know what I mean? It was, I mean, we that was sort of where our traffic was with our e-commerce sites. It actually, um, the cumulative effect of sort of four or five small changes that brought 1% increases. And we found that when we looked for those, rather than trying to find the big 10, 20% things, which were, let's face it, you know, almost impossible once you sort of got up and established. Um, that actually worked quite well as a strategy for us at that point in time. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, whether the, whether actually you can create these sort of cumulative effects with with these sort of smaller changes. Yeah, I mean, absolutely can. I mean, that's the, the sort of foundation on which a testing program is built. Uh, and you're quite right The you know, the 10, 15, 20%, you would only really expect to get them at the very beginning. That's finding mm. and fixing broken things that you, you weren't previously aware of. And then really it is just, it's, you know, it's looking for those one, two percent, because that's typically after you found the broken things, that's, that's all you can hope to achieve. But if you have sufficient scale, then yeah, it's, um, it's absolutely worthwhile. Mm. That's really interesting because I, and it's worth saying that at the start, actually, when it comes to the sort of split testing and A-B testing, you are talking small percentages because I think there is an ex, 
an expectation when you go to certain software's homepages that you're going to, you know, 30, 30% uh, increase in sales, 50% increase in sales. Uh, and these are definitely the exception and not the rule. And the common theme then with CRO, certainly as you get, as you get bigger and you, your longevity is there, you've been around for a little while, the, the numbers become smaller. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think those, I mean, those numbers are, uh, I think they sort of plague CRO as an industry, really. Um, mm. And we get them from all angles. You know, the, the software vendors absolutely are incentivized to talk about those very, very rare experiments. I mean, they do happen. They do happen where you change two words and, you know, conversion goes up by 5% or whatever. Absolutely. But they happen very very rarely but of course mm. those are the things that uh the vendors talk about those are the things that agencies talk about and it sets this sort of burden of expectation where everybody thinks that's what they should be getting and often that's how programs are sold in or if a business decides to work with an agency um they've all heard these incredible stories of people you know changing the button color and getting the double digit conversion rate increase they might sell the agency relationship into the organization on that basis or they might build the business case for establishing a program mm. on that basis i work with a, a very large retailer here in australia who has set up a you know a big experimentation program but the whole thing was founded upon this idea that 50% of all of their experiments would create uh, a, a winning result, which gave them a, an uplift. Uh, and they've got scores of people working on this. And the problem is, of course, they're not hitting that. There's, mm. there's benchmarks. There's a great slide I saw somewhere once which showed sort of benchmarks of publicly available data from companies that have big established optimization programs. So Airbnb, Google, Booking.com, um, you know, all the biggies. And generally, I think their strike credit is probably you know, it was, I mean, differently reported numbers, but let's say 10% at most, mm. 5 10%. And that doesn't include just getting a winning result. That's getting a negative result as well, because most of your tests will do absolutely nothing. Mm. That's fascinating. There's, and so there's, there's, there needs to be, I guess, dare I say it, we don't like to use this phrase when we're entrepreneurs, but there almost needs to be a common sense approach to, to CRO then, which says, actually, let's, let's have a little bit of realism. And we don't like realism, uh, do we? We just, we just don't. We, we, we like the big, hairy, audacious goals and, and, and that sort of thing. But actually, there's, there's a winning formula to be found in the sort of the, the actual realistic numbers. And once, once you're I think, uh, to quote Jim Collins, brutal, brutally honest with the with the facts. Um, actually, you can then start to do some really interesting stuff. Mm. So, what are some of the things that you've seen work well uh, in this space? The biggest, the most effective way to optimize your website that I've just seen again and again and again, which hardly anyone does because it's not cool, it's not sexy, it's not data driven. Really, people don't think it is is literally just user research. It's mm -hmm. sitting down, talking to users, showing them your website, setting some tasks and writing down what they think, doing that a few times and sort of matching the themes. It's just brutally effective. It's brutally effective, but it's not <laughs> sexy. Not very uh, sexy, no. <laughs> no one, I mean, no one likes doing it. No, one, People will come up with all sorts of excuses to just not have to talk to their customers, in my experience. Yeah. That's really interesting. Okay, because this is again um, 
I mean, this is why we've titled the podcast, You Probably Don't Need A-B Testing. This is what came out of our conversation in the pre-call. We were talking a little bit about A-B testing, but you're like, well, actually, you probably don't need it, especially if you're just starting out in e-commerce, um, you know, or, or, or you're quite new to the game, or if you haven't actually done customer research before. And, right. and so this sort of seems to be, um, from what I what I uh, have taken away from you, Oliver, this seems to be by far the first place to start when it comes to your CRO, when it comes to optimization. So why is it then, if this is so brutally effective, and again, a great phrase, um, why is it that we don't do it? Why do we go to great lengths to try and avoid talking to our customers? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's there's an awful, there's an awful lot going on there. Um, partly, I think it's just it's a little bit messy, you know, you have to go and sit down with a, a real person that you have to find firstly. So you have to you have to engage them, you have to sit down with them, you have to get them to show you how bad your website is, oftentimes. <laughs> you know, and people don't like that. It's very uncomfortable. There's a there's a great quote from Avinash Kaushik, uh, Google's uh, analytics evangelist, I think his title is, that used to be on usertesting.com, which is a great, um, now quite enterprise focused, but it's a unmoderated usability testing platform. And there was a quote from him on their homepage and it said, run the test, look at the results, cry, make a million dollars. I like that. Um, okay. But it's, I think it's hard for organizations as well to act on what is essentially bad news. Um, one of my former colleagues, a, a UX researcher and designer called Harry Brignall, who's um, an interesting guy who incidentally came up with the idea of, of dark patterns, which is a, another story. But if you're, you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to explore them. He wrote a great dark blog patterns. post. Dark patterns. Yeah, these are the things that um, you know, sort of Ryanair uses to trick you into spending money that you didn't intend to spend on your um, on your cheap fare. Okay. Sort of UX UX hacks. Um, he's written a lot about that, but this is unrelated. He talked about, um, in a great blog post, he talked about, uh, I think it's called what makes user research unique. And he said, the thing that makes user research unique is it brings bad news. It's painful. It's telling you all of the things that you've done wrong, all of the assumptions you've made about your customers, everything that you've got wrong. And people just, people don't like hearing it. I think. Mm. That's fascinating. We do, we do. It is within our human nature to avoid bad news. We don't like confrontation. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to avoid things that sort of give us the, the bad news, don't we? And, it, and so I guess I can see why this sort of seeps into uh, use, not doing user research because we, it is messy. It is complicated. You are fundamentally dealing with people. The thing you people like about software, I suppose, is it is it's software, mm. right? And it's just, it's over there. It's doing. It's not personal. It's just doing its thing. And you can measure how many people go to page A, and you can measure how many people go to page B, and that's mm. a beautiful thing. And I don't have to get involved. Uh, whereas user research, like you say, the first question is always going to be, why? Why why do I want to talk to people? That's why I got into e-commerce, so I could avoid people. (laughs) I mean, there is is this sort of almost mythical (laughs) A-B test that I think launched a billion terrible A-B tests, which is um, was written up in, in uh, Wired a few years ago. So it's where Google famously couldn't decide between color A, which was A color uh, blue, and another mm. shade of blue for their link colors. So they famously ran this A-B test where they, they tried every shade between them 
And the results apparently led to a sort of, you know, multi-billion dollar increase probably by now in click-throughs. And I think that's the myth on which A-B testing is often sold. People think it's, mm. you, you know, you sort of throw your site into a blender, it breaks it algorithmically down into all of its component pieces and it throws them all sort of back as different variants and magically it spits out a double-digit conversion rate increase, which is absolutely not what happens. You know, the best, even if, if user research is the best way to find out what needs to be fixed about your website, A-B testing is really the best way to validate that at scale. This is, mm. this is the sort of drama I'm always banging on, even with clients that have sophisticated A-B testing programs. Often the reason why they're not getting the sorts of results that they expected is because they're not doing the research to actually find those concepts in the first place, which really just has to start with qualitative mm. research. Okay, so uh, I get that it's messy. I get that we don't like um, bad news. Are there any other reasons why we tend to avoid consumer research? None that I've thought of particularly. I think there's sort of, there's, you know, different overlapping versions of that. I mean, in large organisations, people will say that it's, it's hard for them to talk to customers. There's often mm. sort of layers of, of bureaucracy which are involved. Um, people have a perception that it's expensive, which it can be sometimes if you use um, uh, recruitment agencies. Um, but I think it's typically just that it's... Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a bit messy and demanding and perhaps something that is uh, outside of the skill of most, most people. You know, it's a particular mm. skill to be able to sit down with somebody and try and sort of tease out the, the themes and common threads uh, around, you know, why a website is, mm. you know, difficult, off-putting, hard to use, whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, yeah I think that, that, that really captures it. Very good. So uh, don't go anywhere. We're just going to take a few moments to listen to or to hear from the amazing sponsors that we have, which enables us to keep doing the show and enables us to talk to amazing people like Oliver. Uh, we'll be right back uh, following uh, this from our sponsors. Did you know that nutrition is one of the keys to maintaining the energy you need to drive your business forward? Vegetology creates incredible unique supplements in an eco-friendly, ethical and sustainable way that feed your body with the precise nutrients it needs. We're not just making you healthier, we're helping to protect our planet too. Our products are vegan friendly and approved by the Vegan and Vegetarian Society Plus, they're gluten-free, so they fit perfectly into any lifestyle. They also contain no artificial colours or flavours, making them good for your taste buds too. You can feel good about your food choices with our healthy, natural supplements. We have something for everyone, whether you want to boost your immune system or just get more energy every day. And we're always working on new ingredients so that we can provide even better products in the future. So what are you waiting for? Get started now by heading over to vegetology.com. Hey there, are you a business owner? Here at Orion Digital, we know firsthand that running an e-commerce business can be really hard work. As the online space gets more competitive, it is becoming even more challenging to stay ahead of the curve. We totally get it. So we want to help you succeed by offering a wide range of services, from fulfillment, marketing, customer service, and even coaching and consulting, just so that you can do what matters most. Save yourself the time and the money and let us handle the day-to-day -day tasks. This way, you can run your business without having to worry about the boring stuff. So what do you say? Are we a good fit for each other? 
Come check us out at oriondigital.com and let us know what you think. So I am back with Oliver. We are talking about conversion rate optimization uh, and why you probably don't need A-B testing. So let's dig into that a little bit. So we, we started talking about A-B testing. We defined what it was. We then said, you know, uh, uh, that user research was brutally effective. Um, so why do I probably not need A-B testing? Why, why, why do I need um, consumer <laughs> research instead of A-B testing, if that makes sense? Yeah, so I, I wrote a blog post um, probably last year that was called You Probably Don't Need A-B Testing. And the reason why I wrote that was because I often um, got you know prospects coming to me via my website wanting to start A-B testing. And I really got tired of telling them the same things. Um, so, I mean, the reason why they don't need it is because they probably don't have the traffic and that there is more effective ways that they can go about gleaning that insight. I think it's almost like a way um, you sort of graduate from user research, qualitative observations about your users. And then once you've got sufficient scale, you'll graduate into validating that with, with quantitative research via A-B testing. But you certainly can't have a good A-B testing program without a good qualitative research uh, program of insights feeding into that. So you may as well set up that foundation to begin with. So this, so this is in effect for any company, is this your first port of call is, is consumer research before, even before AB testing? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there'll be a certain amount of, um, of quantitative research and analysis. So digging through analytics data as well. That's a, obviously a great way to find opportunities, looking at the conversion funnels, looking at the traffic mix and so on, seeing where good traffic's coming from, where bad traffic's coming from. Um, but it certainly needs that qualitative lens on it as well. So the... The ideas then behind, so when you say consumer research or customer research, I, 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 just, I just say user research, by the way. Okay, so user research. Okay, yeah. but let's get our phrases right. Yeah. Uh, so when we talk about user research, in my head, right, the default picture in my head, and this is very wrong, and I'm maybe it's very right, Oliver, you're going to correct me, um, is I'm stood in a room in a lab coat with a clipboard, uh, and I've got four or five people busy using computers uh, and I'm just sort of going around taking notes uh, as and as and when they raise their hands. Um, I assume can, uh, user research is very very different to that. So how how does it actually work in practice? So it really depends on I suppose on the size of the operation. Um, sometimes it can be you know it can be very informal. Um, I was working for a, a telco a few years ago in the UK, and my user research was. Uh, going into their stores and sort of listening in on the conversations that the, the the retail staff working in the stores had with customers. That was a way for me to understand what were the sorts of, uh, you know, the concerns, objections and things that customers had. So that's a, that's a um, you know, a fairly particular form of, of, of user research that was easy to carry out in that case because they had a store actually very conveniently close to our office. It didn't require... Uh, uh, input from anyone to do that. Sometimes it's been even um, one of the retailers that I work with here in Australia. Some years ago, I used to set up 
in their outdoor furniture department with a stack of $20 gift cards. And as people would walk past, they'd say, hey, can you mind talking to me about um, this website for a little bit? Um, people were universally happy to do so. And it's simply just try and probe and ask some questions and find out what were the things that they found confusing, difficult, and off-putting. Sometimes it can be, um, it doesn't have to be in person. Of course, over the last few years, it's very rarely been in person. That's in some ways one of the good things about this pandemic is that people have become much more adept at using video conferencing software. So typically these days yep. it will happen over Zoom and we'll sit down with um, sit down with users. Not so many. It will be individually, one at a time, typically about five users per round. And um, set them some tasks normally, say, um, you know, visit, uh, visit this website. They will typically have been um, targeted through that website. So something that's actually quite new to me, which is, has been a real game changer, is one of the UX researchers that I work with. Um, I asked him to um, compile a list of, of prospects from uh, existing customers, from email addresses, and mm-hmm which seemed fairly straightforward to me and what I'd always done in the past. His approach was, well, we know that uh, 98.5% of people coming to the website aren't buying. Those are the people we want to talk to, which is one of those things that's maddeningly obvious in hindsight. Um, And so he created an intercept that sat on the site um, and people would say, hey, we want to talk to you. You know, we'll give you a voucher or something. And so people opted in and uh, we would get people that had never bought from the site before. And then, um, yeah, set them some tasks. Say, you know, on this website, um, find something you like, go through the uh, process of buying it. That's a way of sort of just doing a real sweep for UX issues. You know, we might find that the filters aren't easy to use or, um, you know, something like that, something very basic. And then we'll sort of go in and probe and find out a little bit more around, you know, why they purchase um, that particular uh, uh, product category online, for instance, and try and understand more about their consumption habits. And mm. typically, I mean, fascinating things crop out of this. I did some work recently for a for a wine retailer, and um, they sell mixed packs of wine online. And what we discovered through this research was that people have a um, mistrust of mis- mixed packs. They see that as they're sort of offloading bad stock, but they did not have (laughs) any mistrust for a subscription. Everyone said, wine subscription, I'd sign up for that. So we can change the wording and make it a recurring billing and suddenly it's um, it's a much more profitable endeavor. So that's just one of the just really um, arcane and interesting things that you you find out when you sit down and chat to your customers. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Okay, so there's a lot there. So if I'm going to do some uh, user research, um, I like the idea uh, that you had um, of talking to people who are not buying as well as the people that are. And you're right. I mean, there's a, you know, when you look at the stats on your website, whatever the numbers are, you know, at 98, 97, 96% of people are not buying. So these are people that actually are very good to do some uh, research with. So how do you... What sort of different, if I'm running an e-commerce business, what are some of the methodologies maybe that I could use to try and bring them in? I mean, you talked about standing there with a gift card. Maybe we're doing a pop-up type of thing. What sort of thing works well to get people to give me the time to do the the research? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's just an inducement. I think it, and it needs to be quite a healthy inducement as well. Mm. I think in this case, this was a this was a London-based retailer. We said, I think it was forty pounds or something for for forty-five minutes or an hour of people's time, um, and that was sufficient. And in my experience, it's really it's 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 better to um, you know spend more money basically and offer mm. a higher inducement, and that really commits people to a showing up you get a much better um you know not so much of a no a lower no-show rate if you offer a better inducement but also um i think people feel um somewhat like they um you know they owe you a a sort of a depth and a quality of response that's that yeah it's and actually your value you're showing that you value them in their time and i think there's always that reciprocation isn't there with that um, so, okay, so you could do some kind of pop-up, I suppose, which mm-hmm. actually says, listen, uh, 40 quid for, you know, 40 minutes of your time sort of thing. Now, without getting too nitpicky and into the detail, Oliver, um, 40 minutes, is that about what I need? Yeah, uh, I think typically? so. I'd say 40 minutes to an hour. Yeah, I'd typically allow an hour uh, per per respondent, yeah. And so uh, each responder that comes along, they're coming along on Zoom and you can use services like Zcal or whatever to schedule, so they can schedule appointments that work for them. They're on Zoom. I'm assuming um, they're sharing their screen. They are. Uh, and you're yep. watching what you're doing and you're recording uh, the whole thing. So you've, you've got to have their permission, I, I guess, to record uh, the call. Yep. Um, and so they're sharing the screen. So uh, I, I, I'm there in my head. I can picture what was going on. Um, so at this point, you mentioned that I need to give them a series of tasks mm-hmm. uh, to do. Um, is is it as obvious as saying, I want you to buy our best-selling product, or is it? are we giving them quite complex tasks? So, or are we giving them multiple things to do on, on, this, on the website during that hour? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you wouldn't spend an hour um, simply in task mode, I think, but it really depends what you're testing. If you're running a very general test, a sort of a first sweep of your website if you're not testing a you know a particular new feature or something like that and you really want to understand what the the sort of blockers are then i would think a, a general task that says you know find something that you like from our website for instance and go through the purchase of process of, of purchasing that because that will allow you to see how do they interact with it do they use search for instance do they use your category pages do they use filters how do they interact with the, the drop downs on your product pages? So within that task, you really have the, I suppose, the discovery aspect of it. And then also the transactional bit as they go through the checkout funnel. Okay, so um, so I'm watching them do this and I, I'm very aware that um, that I guess the words that I use uh, could lead them one way or another. And mm. so I have to try and be as independent or as neutral. I have to be like Switzerland, I suppose, when I'm conducting the research. You really do, which is, it's it's very difficult. And that's really why somebody who is a little bit sort of impartial, who hasn't made those decisions, who's not connected to the website, is really the best person to be running that user research. I, I signed up for, my power company asked me to participate in some research about their app recently and it's a it's a small sort of um startup uh, power retailer based here in melbourne and the guy who ran the research sessions was a sort of hybrid ux designer ux researcher and uh i was critiquing his decisions 
and uh, he got very defensive, and it was almost useless. We shouldn't have been. He shouldn't have been running that session at all. Mm. So someone independent, if if at all possible, from Ideally. the site should be running yeah. running that. So. And I guess so. If, and this again, I guess it's all going to come down to budget, isn't it? Because if I'm if if I'm uh, a startup, if I'm hustling, then actually I'm probably going to be doing these re- user research reviews myself mm. because a lack of budget is going to stop me getting someone independent to it. Especially, you know, if like yourself, a consultant or someone with experience in this whole area. Mm, mm. Um, so, can I still get meaningful results if I do it myself? Uh, they're maybe not as good, but is it still worth doing if I can't get an independent person to do the reviews? I think so. I think it depends on how on how impartial you can be. But yes, I think so. The other thing that's worth mentioning that we, we haven't really discussed yet is unmoderated user usability testing. So that's using a site. Um, the original one was usertesting.com. I think there's Usabilla, there's UserZoom maybe. There's lots of these different sites out there. If you Google unmoderated or remote usability testing, there's a slew mm. of these sites and in that case, you actually don't have to be there. You just watch you watch videos. So you set the task and you say, mm-hmm. um, you know, find something on our site, go through the process of buying it. And what will come back is a screencast and they will, you know, these participants are very good at verbalizing their thoughts aloud mm-hmm. as they go through the process. The first time I used that was really, uh, it was using usertesting.com and it was um, many years ago now. It was the very first um, yeah, user user test I ever ran. I was working for a, a magazine um, a site that sold magazine subscriptions here in Australia. Yeah, and we just set up a uh, a normal sort of sweep. You know, we said find your favorite magazine and go through the process of buying it. Um, and people got to the everything was fine until we did five of them. Five out of five customers got to the checkout page. They saw a notice that said you will receive your first magazine in eight to 12 weeks, which is exactly how the magazine industry works because of lead times in publishing, the fact that you've got distributors using, you know, old dot matrix printers in warehouses somewhere, there's mm. imports, there's all sorts of delays. So magazine subscriptions certainly back then took that long. They probably still do. So we thought we were being like Amazon, just telling people exactly when they could expect to receive their first issue. All of the people that we tested said, this site is a joke. Absolutely no (laughs) way would I buy something that's going to take eight to 12 weeks to get to me. We checked all of our competitors and saw that we were the only people that said that, even though they were using the exact same distributors, same magazines, Mm -hmm. had the same issue. We very cautiously took it off expecting a flood of inbound complaints which we we watched very carefully and conversion went up i mean a lot like 10 percent or mm. something almost immediately which is just one of those things that we never would have seen you know we had the curse of knowledge um mm-hmm. you know they're saying what you can't you can't read the jar if you're if you're inside of it essentially yeah that's very true yeah i like that i like that so there are these sites then that we can use um unmoderated user testing sites yeah. and just google that and there'll be a whole and I, i'm guessing that the people that do the user testing are experienced in this area hence the reason they're used to verbalizing what they're doing and what the problems are and so on and so forth it's one of the reasons why yeah. i think it's it's not quite as good actually because you would typically mm. get sort of quite professional testers um, and, uh, you know, they won't necessarily have an affinity with your product category, with your site. 
Uh, and I think often things can go undetected with remote usability testing versus mm. in person, which gives you the opportunity to really probe deeper. But certainly it's better than nothing. And, um, you know, hopefully if, if your listeners tried, it might might get them hooked and help them sort of see the value. Yeah, yeah. and it's certainly a good place to start, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I, like you say, there's nothing that beats actually talking to the users on the site um, and figuring out what's going on with them. So I'm assuming in this conversation that's like 40 minutes to an hour, there's a mixture of tasks that are happening. I want you to do X for me and just talk me through whatever's going on in your head as you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I imagine you have a series of questions, just like general questions, which aren't necessarily related to the site, but maybe uh, are related to the user and uh, whereabouts are they and, uh, you know, sort of simple user information. Um, is is that is that right? So it, it's a mixture of sort of um, tasks and just general conversation uh, and just seeing what comes out in that conversation. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's general conversation. Sometimes you're really probing to try and understand um, the, I suppose, the deeper trends or the, the, the things that are the things that make people want to go online and buy that product or not, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, I think of the, you familiar with the idea of, of jobs to be done? Uh, go ahead and explain it. Right. So jobs to be done is something I know um, Clayton Christensen, the guy who came up with the, the innovator's dilemma was, um, was involved in this and some research that looked at the reasons why people buy things. And the example they talk about in this book is um, doing some research on customers buying milkshakes in the US. And mm. what, they, what they came to realize through this research is that commuters buying milkshakes and not buying milkshakes because they're thirsty or hungry or because they want something to drink. It's that a milkshake in a long commute is something that keeps them from being bored. So the job to be done with a milkshake is not sustenance. It's not um, quenching a thirst. It's giving me something to do while I drive and stopping me from being bored. And that's often the sort of thing that we're trying to find out with when we probe deeply in this sort of research mm. to find, you know, what is the job to be done with this thing? Why are you visiting the site? Why are you buying this thing online versus uh, in person? Um, you know, what are the really the deeper things that sort of sit beneath the obvious? And so that just comes from asking questions and probing uh, the, the users that come to the site. So I... I've got the user testing. I've, I've, I've had some great conversations. I've got some insights. I've watched them, uh, you know, using the website and gone, oh, my Lord, I need to change this on the website. Okay, cool. How do I record that data? Is, there, is it just a case of I just whack it into a Google document or is there, is there a better way to sort of help myself in terms of recording the data that I find? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a holy grail, I think, for many organisations. Certainly, for large organisations, everyone that I've ever worked with has had their own system or their own plan for how they're going to create a you know a single repository for all of their research that will be indexed and searchable and and whatever. My feeling is that for the most part, it should be disposable. You know, you mm. will you if you do say five interviews, you will notice some themes very quickly. I think. Um, uh, you know, that you'll need to action. I think it depends on what you want to do with it. If you need to, to write something up to convince people within your business that they need to act on it, then, yeah, it's a matter of synthesizing into, you know, what those themes are and how uh, prevalent they were within the users that you spoke to. But for the most part, particularly if it's, if it's, you know, very early on, if you haven't done that sort of research before, 
it's going to be blindingly obvious what you need to do. You're going to say, oh, right, people don't understand how to use the filter. You know, we need to fix the filter, for instance. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just like, well, whatever works, right? I, I, it's, it's one of those. Now, you've mentioned this a couple of times, and you're not the first guest to mention this, but you keep coming up with this number five. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, which I think is quite interesting. Explain to, explain to the listener uh, why five? Why five users? Five is, I mean, this is contentious, actually. So this is something that comes from the Nielsen Norman group. The, the sort of godfather of web usability is a guy called, um, uh, God, not Don Norman, but his partner, Jacob Nielsen. Um, he was one of the first people, you know, back in the mid-90s that was talking about uh, the usability of websites and has done a lot of work, um, you know, promoting UX research and usability and so on. And he wrote a, a sort of a famous article some years ago, which uh, talked about the fact that in their experience, 80% of all usability issues could be identified with by talking to five users. Subsequently, it's been very contentious. A lot of people dispute this. I've just latched onto the idea of five. You know, five is better than nothing. I think it's better than four. <laughs> it's not quite as many as six. It's a kind of a neat little number of users to talk to. Um, but the point there is it's not statistically significant. You could talk to 100 users. One of the things he says in, the, um, in that post, he, he says that people often hire us, big companies hire us and say, we want you to talk to 100 users because that's going to be statistically significant. People are going to pay attention to that number internally. If we say, well, we spoke to five users and we saw this, it's not going to carry any heft. But the point here is this is not science, it's business. So let's just talk to a handful of users and see what comes out of it. And five is as good a number as any, I think. Yeah, no, it's, and actually five is quite, I'm sitting here thinking um, of my own e-commerce business. Like, and five actually is quite manageable. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You can, you can look at five and go, I could do five. Yep. Um, uh, that's, that's not too much of a problem. I guess one of the questions then, um, about this whole idea around uh, customer research is that you continually and perpetually do, or is this this is this a one-off event? Because five would 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 dictate to me a project. It would say that there's a start date and an end date, whatever the number is, whether it's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, hundred, or whatever it is. That's a project with a start date and an end date. So should I be repeatedly doing those projects throughout the year? Hmm. I think it depends on, you know, what your, um, what sort of available, what resource availability you have. Um, and to what extent, if you keep finding new and useful things, then of course you should continue to explore. Um, many people may find that they hit diminishing mm. returns, you know, fairly early on, but I think it will, it will really vary. And it can be, you know, um, one of the a really great project I worked on once was with a, a newspaper over in the UK. We were sort of redeveloping uh, the the whole website. We worked in a in a team of uh, as of a small team with a you know a designer, a developer, a UX researcher. I was doing optimization, product manager, um, and we would run on these one week long sprints, which culminated in what we called testing Tuesday. So every Tuesday, everybody would sit in a meeting room and we would watch a usability researcher sort of two meeting rooms up 
um, talking to somebody and showing them all the work that had happened in the week before. And that was something throughout that process of redevelopment that happened every week for months and months. And it was a matter of, you know, initially all of those sort of face palm moments and then, you know, they'd fix the thing and then gradually it got better and mm. better and better and better before it was released. So on a big program, you know, project, if you're working on a replatforming or, or something large like that, um, absolutely regular iterative usability testing can be great. For most people, I'd say you probably will hit diminishing returns, you know, after you've done it a few times, but just check in periodically because you make changes, you know, websites are constantly evolving. So, um, you know, go in, validate those things. You don't even need to show people your actual website. If you're thinking about making a change, you could show them a clickable mm. prototype that you can make in Keynote or PowerPoint or something. Um, you could show them a sketch, you know, it depends what you're doing, but um, whenever you are making those decisions and changing things, I think there's um, there's some value to be had in running the project. Yeah, no, fantastic advice. And um, yeah, thank you for also explaining the number five. Both you and AJ uh, Davis uh, talked about that. And I'm like, okay, that's fascinating that this, now I understand why, uh, which is very, very helpful. <laughs> um, Oliver, I, I guess <clears throat> in an ideal world, right, um, as an e-commerce business owner myself, we have an e-commerce website. Um, I get that I should be doing some form of optimization. It makes total sense to me, right? And I, and I get the arguments for it. Um, I am now convinced uh, between you and AJ that actually um, I need to be doing user testing uh, on that. Um, and I need to think about that long before I think about A-B testing. I guess in an ideal world, is it fair to say that I should be running both, uh, both those things? Is there anything else from an optimization point of view? I mean, I, not to necessarily get into detail, just from a headline point of view that I should also be thinking about. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think your analytics is, um, is, is, you know, a big part of that. I think people in, in the world of e-commerce are fortunate in that more or less out of the box, if you're using Google Analytics, you can have very good mm. tracking to actually understand, um, you know, the changes that you're making, the the merchandising initiatives or whatever else you're doing on your website. You can see very clearly what they're doing in terms of impacting on on propensity to purchase. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a critical thing to to have set up. And I'm surprised actually how often I look at. Um, look at analytics implementations for small and sometimes medium-sized businesses that actually haven't enabled some of the critical features in there, the things that you really just have to tick mm. a few boxes, like setting it up so that your Google Analytics records what people type into the search bar, for instance, uh, that, you know, the on-site mm -hmm. search function. So many people don't go through those sort of basic hygiene setups of ensuring that they've got that set up or e-commerce, uh, enhanced e-commerce functionality implemented as well so if you don't have those i, I really recommend and it's all there isn't it it's not it, like you say it's just a case of switching it on and, and making sure that you're tracking that data i mean certainly in the case of using a you know a shopify or a woocommerce or something that they are pretty much out of the box um set up to implement a, a data layer and yeah you just turn mm. on those features no, fantastic fantastic so user research a b testing and analytics good core functions of optimization. 
the holy trinity. <laughs> <laughs> the holy trinity of optimization. I'm sure somebody somewhere has drawn like a Venn diagram and there's three intersecting circles and in the middle where they all intersect, you know, it's like the holy grail is 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 right there in that in that little bit, right? Yeah, there's a dollar sign in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Oliver, listen, I really enjoyed our conversation this morning for me, uh, this evening for you. Um, how do people reach you? How do people connect with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, I'm at uh, oliverpalmer.com. Uh, blog there periodically, and there's links to LinkedIn, Twitter, all that sort of business uh, there, oliverpalmer.com. That's pretty easy, oliverpalmer.com. Do check out Oliver's website. I'm sure he would love to hear from you and of course you can get all of uh, well that one single link uh, we'll put the link to oliver's website uh, and uh, his linkedin profile if we can find it um all in this week's show notes uh, where you can get the notes transcripts and all of that sort of good stuff so if you get those delivered to your e- uh, inbox automatically that will be in there as well so oliver thank you so much for being with us really really appreciate your time and your insight uh and yeah it's interesting actually how uh, user research is now becoming a bit of a hot topic and more and more people are wanting to talk about this. So thank you for your insight. Thanks for giving us the head start. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been great to be here. Well, a special thanks to my guest, Oliver. What did you think? Did you learn stuff? Of course you did. It's just really helpful to get that information, isn't it? And if you're like me, you kind of you you rapidly take notes uh, from the guests, and you always think, "Oh, they could be better." So if yours are like mine and they're kind of scrappy notes, well, just head over to the podcast uh, page on the web for free. You don't need an email address or any of that sort of stuff. EcommercePodcast.net forward slash ninety nine. You'll find everything there: the links, the notes, the transcript, everything. We've done it for you. Yes, we have. Uh, Such a legend, isn't he? Now, as I said, this is episode 99 at the start. Yes, I think it deserves a celebration. And maybe if the sign guys are paying attention, they can put in a little celebration music right now. Cha-ching. Yes, they can. I really hope they do that. Now, next week then, if this is episode 99, next time, well, that's episode 100. We've got something special lined up for it. Yes, we have. So I'm not going to play you an excerpt from next week's show. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to play you an excerpt from episode 100. I'm just going to let it all be a huge surprise for you. Yes, it's going to be epic. Yes, it's going to be large. Yes, it's going to be worth the episode 100. So I just can't believe we got to episode 100 already. Amazing, really. I am really looking forward to this. It'll be a little bit different. But do stay tuned, of course. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast, follow it, uh, like, do all the things that you need to do to get it to automatically appear in your inbox uh, or on your platform of choice, whether that's YouTube, Apple, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, we're on everything, I think, at the moment. So, you know, you can use it. And whilst you're there subscribing, just leave us a little rating or review. Just helps us to reach more people, which is a beautiful thing because... Without you, our fantastic audience, we would never have got to episode 99. That's for dang sure. So uh, we really appreciate you being with us on the journey. And the fact that you guys are so helpful in spreading the word about what we're doing is just a beautiful thing. So do keep doing that. I really, really appreciate it. Let us know how you get on with the podcast. Love to hear your feedback. Uh, As I said at the start, from today's show, episode 99, go to ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 99. You can get all the notes and stuff for free. Thank you so much for listening. 
Honestly, it's great to be with you. It's great to learn how to deliver e-commerce well. I love doing what we're doing. I love talking to the guests. I love the show. It's brilliant. Absolutely love it. And if you don't get anything out of it, I know I do, which is one of the reasons why we keep doing it. Yes, it is. Absolutely. So <laughs> that's it from me. I think I've waffled on enough. I will see you next time in episode 100. You've been listening to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson. Join us next time for more interviews, tips, and tools for building your business online.